Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we look at the events of September 11th, 20 years on. We look at a new book titled Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. It's a new book just out by Ray McGinnis. Later in the program, 9-11 researcher and video producer Ken Jenkins joins the program to discuss psychological pitfalls of 9-11 research. We'll discuss cognitive biases, like implicit bias and confirmation bias, and how these can be very powerful obstacles to actually finding the truth about complicated and controversial events like 9-11. Today on the Project Censored Show, another hour looking at events of September 11th, 20 years on. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, the 20th anniversary or commemoration of the 9-11 attacks, a new book is coming out, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. It's a new book coming out on September 11th by Ray McGinnis. We have the author with us. Ray McGinnis was born in Vancouver, Canada, educated in political science, religious studies, and history. He graduated with a BA at the University of Toronto. He also earned a diploma in Christian education from the Center for Christian Studies. Well, on 9-11, Ray McGinnis was at an adult retreat with 60 Americans in Joshua Tree, California. Seven years later, he discovered Christian Breitweiser's memoir, Wake Up Call. And we'll talk about that in our conversation here because Ray McGinnis's book looks at the September 11th families. And of course, Ray was a constant consumer of the news, and he was surprised to learn that September 11th families had pressed for an investigation into the attacks. Of course, we've covered that on the Project Censored show with the Press for Truth film. Ray was surprised that the corporate news media that he relied on ignored this major news story or kept it off the radar. This led McGinnis to delve further into the questions raised by the Family Steering Committee for the 9-11 Independent Commission. The search for information led him to uncover more open-source material and the range of views among September 11th family members. It has led him to reflect on what it means to live in a post-9-11 world and the narratives we trust. Ray McGinnis, welcome to the Project Censored Show. It's great to be here with you, Mickey. Great to, great to see you. I'm very, very grateful to Eileen Proctor for connecting us, the great publicist work that she does. And Ray, as you know, and we've talked a little before the show, Peter Phillips and I have long researched the unanswered questions and strongly believe that it is important to follow those questions to find the answers wherever they lead us, knowing that it's not an easy path. But what we found, and I've taught a course on 9-11 historiography for over 15 years, The story of the Family Steering Committee was always, to me, one of the honest historical ways in by looking at a group of people who were directly related to the trauma of 9-11 through family members and loved ones who died or were injured, and they thought that their government was going to try to take care of them and try to really find out what was happening around this issue. So, Ray McGinnis, talk to us about this. What got you started down this path? 
and your focus on the family steering committee in general? My path, I remembered where I was in September 11th in Joshua Tree and took me five days to get back across the Canadian border because there were no planes flying. Then I heard Lloyd Axworthy, the former foreign affairs minister in Canada, talk about how this was really a police and intelligence operation to apprehend someone and not to start a full-scale war. But anyway, Afghanistan happened, war in Iraq happened, anthrax attacks happened. And like everyone else, I'm just reeling from the news and carrying on with my life, teaching writing workshops. And then the 9-11 Commission comes along and all I saw was Condoleezza Rice. The 9-11 Commission was not well covered in Vancouver, at least, if anywhere. And so when I found Kristen Breitweiser's book, Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow, I was quite surprised to pick up the book and to discover, as I read through it, that family members had pressed for an investigation against a reluctant Bush administration. And so I began to look at their questions. I found their website online. I read their hundreds and hundreds of questions. I thought about them. I got Paul Thompson, the researcher who had put stuff on his timeline that the families then found so very helpful to read thousands and thousands of news articles. The 9-11 timeline, Paul Thompson, I got to give him a shout out here and got to give our old friend John Gold a major shout out who did the great series of interviews we were lied to about 9-11, featuring so many scholars, researchers, family members, and including Paul Thompson. But anyway, sorry to interrupt you. So they found the, the timeline very helpful. They'd put all these individual articles from the mainstream media in binders, but now they had it all up there online. Paul Thompson had connected all the dots with all the links to, to things related. And so from reading those mainstream news articles, they began to form questions that they wanted answers for their government. And I think that at the beginning, with quite a number of them having voted for the Bush-Cheney ticket, they expected that the president and the vice president would be their strongest advocates. But what they found out very quickly was that the White House was stonewalling any investigation for 14 months. That's the first chink in the unreserved support of the White House. And then the next one is when the president appoints Henry Kissinger as the head of the 9-11 Commission, and the families do some background checks about him, and they meet with him at his lovely apartment in, in Manhattan, and they uh, ask, I think Lori Van Auken asks, we just want to make sure that there's no conflict of interest, that you don't have any clients for the name of Bin Laden, and, and he spills his coffee all over the coffee table and uh, falls off the chair nearly and resigns the next day. And so... That's all very surprising to the families. Then the Bush administration gives just $3 million for an investigation that, in contrast, nearly $80 million was spent on the Clintons with Whitewater and Vince Foster and Monica Lewinsky. So that sends a, a message to everybody who's paying attention that this is not that important or they want it to go away. The New York Times, I think, said that the Bush administration was trying to starve the commission from being able to do its job. Then the families want to have subpoena power. They want to have witnesses called under oath. And, uh, you know, people like Lee Hamilton, who's co-chairing, who was involved in the Iran-Contra inquiry, doesn't want to have public hearings, doesn't want to have subpoenas, and doesn't want to have people testify under oath. He also is a longtime best friend of both the Vice President Cheney and uh, Donald Rumsfeld. So you're having people who are being appointed who are not indifferent they're not neutral observers. When they talk about an independent commission, 
independent from what? It's not independent from the establishment, that's for sure. And, and take a look at who they put in charge of editing the commission report, none other than historian Philip Zelikow, who wrote books with Condoleezza Rice that he's allegedly investigating in an objective way. Yeah, and who was also involved in writing the plan for invasion of Iraq. The whole preemptive strike document was written by him, and plus all the phone calls he's taking from Karl Rove during the investigation. So it's not a, an independent in the way we understand that word. Tom Keene is involved with companies that are part of the consortium that want a pipeline across Afghanistan. So lots of problems with that. But still, I want to say that at the beginning, the families are still expecting, as Kristen Breitweiser writes in her book, they're expecting that the government is going to run an inquiry and show them why it is legitimate that the people responsible for the atrocity are bin Laden and the 19 hijackers. And that continues all the way through till May of 2004, when there are nearly 50 press releases. They're still saying they have some problems, real problems with the testimony of, of Mayor Giuliani in, in May of 2004. But in that press release, they're still saying, despite the fact that we agree that the 19 hijackers and bin Laden were responsible, we have the following problems with Giuliani's testimony. So there's a real coalescing around accepting the official story, at least those bare bones, through to the end of the commission. And it really takes the publication of the 9-11 Commission report, especially the Jersey Girls, Kristen Breitweiser, Patty Casaza, Lori Van Auken, and Mindy Kleinberg notice, and Monica Gabrielle as well, are noticing that only 9% of the questions the families asked, their hundreds of questions, were really dealt with with any seriousness. You've got a number of other ones that are touched on, which might include the question asked of Donald Rumsfeld. Mr. Rumsfeld, did you order planes to be scrambled to defend the Pentagon? He looks around at the clock on the wall and hums and haws, and then he simply repeats the question, did I scramble jets to defend the Pentagon? And then Tom Keene bangs his gavel and says, time's up. So I guess we can call that a question that was addressed, but it wasn't really answered. Maybe it and was one of those unknown unknowns, Ray McGinnis. Yeah, an unknown unknown. So then you got 70% of the questions that are not answered at all. And at that point, I think that begins to be a catalyst for a fracturing of the consensus of the families on the Family Steering Committee. And then also as a catalyst for, in 2005, the New York Times publishes the 503 testimonies of first responders with the Fire Department of New York, firefighters and EMTs which takes you 12,000 pages to read. And I, I just read uh, one a day for a year and a half. And when people are, you know, over a hundred of them reporting explosions in the buildings as part of their rescue efforts, it just raises all kinds of more questions about, well, why did the 9-11 Commission not explore that? So this leads to what has now been a series of different efforts by different family members spearheading calls for new investigations since 2005. Well, Ray McGinnis, there are certainly a lot of accolades about your book that's coming out on September 11th. The full title is Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. The author is Ray McGinnis. At this time, we're going to take a brief musical break. When we come back, we will continue our conversation with Ray McGinnis. Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program in this segment, we take a look at Unanswered Questions. It's a new book by author Ray McGinnis. Ray, you are joining us today and talking to us about a book that I believe took you over a decade to write. Is that correct? That's right. And I initially was not thinking of writing a book. I was simply compiling my own document in my computer of, of all these articles that have been referred to sometimes by the family steering committee with their questions. They would have links to articles or Paul Thompson's timeline. And so I read these and I sat with them. And I began actually initially writing my own personal reaction to the story, a kind of a personal journal entries. And some people said that they thought that I really should try and write something. They thought that a different kind of book than the many good efforts that are out there, which I would say are far more hardball political science and history or current events books that are much more left brain, that if I could weave in the kind of personal narrative that, I try, that I've tried to do in my book with quotes by different family members and first responders, that that would be a way in. And I thought this would be a way for people who'd been to my writing workshops that they could hold on to the chapters and carry on because there was enough personal story that would grab their attention and not get lost in the woods of details. You put the serious human element at the center of the story, and that is the center of the 9-11 story itself, is the tragedy of what happens to uh, some 3,000 people from all over the world, of course, in New York and Washington and Pennsylvania. And as an historian, I find the greatest way to go and look and tell those stories is to find the people who were telling them at the time as the primary resources. And I have to say, Ray McGinnis, I think you've done a great job of compiling that to create a powerful message that many people still don't want to hear. So you then talk about the steering committee, the forming of the commission, who's involved in it. You talk about questions. You go into those actual questions about NORAD, about the FAA, about CIA investigations and foreknowledge, about Mayor Giuliani, questions to the president, questions about the Port Authority, questions of various officials, questions of ISI Pakistani intelligence, Al-Qaeda. You bring up important historic documents of the people involved in the Bush administration that were involved at the Project for the New American Century. Rebuilding America's defenses, where they talked about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. And then after 9-11, Bush immediately called it a new Pearl Harbor. So you have a really comprehensive story. But again, it's through the lens of the people that were impacted most. I wanted to go back to that. And could you highlight a few of the other kind of passages or other stories that you have from these family members that really inspired you or helped frame the way you included them in this book? I had to think a lot about the voices and the tone of the questions. Because, I mean, you've got Stephen Push, who's not part of the Family Steering Committee, but he testifies before the 9-11 Commission on March 31st, 2003. And he says, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but I do think that there are people who are responsible who need to be held accountable for their failure. There was a surprise attack, but nonetheless, there are protocols in place and there are people who fell down on their jobs. Mindy Kleinberg says similar things, although she says all of these protocols and all these agencies all falling down like keystone cops all in the same day. So there's the families who are asking the questions. I find it actually amazing that they ask these hundreds and hundreds of questions that are there with some people on that family steering committee who, in my view, must be quite conservative in terms of trust in the official story. Carrie Lemack is there who lost her mother, Judy LaRock. 
She later on forms the Camilla Group, which is a national security business that she runs for years afterwards. Robin Weiner, who's the president of the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries and who'd been long involved with Congress, with legal and political issues. People who are very familiar, the whole families of September 11th, the FOS 11, has Carol Ashley, Beverly Eckert, Carrie Lemack, and Robin Weiner all part of it. If you look at the board of directors of that group, it's a very establishment group, not a radical group at all, but I'm saying conservative establishment group. And then you have other people from the September 11th advocates who are, who are asking questions that are far more out there. But I find it amazing that with the 12 people, as I imagine them getting around the table, that they agreed to, to say, these are the questions we will ask the 9-11 commission. And then that you have 9-11 commissioners on record saying, thank you for your questions, families, during committee. These are the questions that we will treat as a roadmap for how to do our investigation. And then when it's all over, they only ask 9% of the questions. That's riveting and something that I'm sure most people still don't know or don't recall. Again, it just falls right in line. The Bush administration, whatever their degree of involvement, and of course many yeah. liberals and the Democrats were smarting from the 2000 election and the Supreme Court selection of George Bush who lost the popular vote. But there was unification after 9-11, like something that we haven't seen really since in this country. There was a unification, and it was hard for Democrats to criticize the what is now known and obvious incompetence at best of the Bush administration. But it was very difficult back at that time to really ask these questions, and the, these families were asking while they may be forensically astute questions, they were not politically popular at all. Yeah, and even the questions like, I mean, sometimes people have asked me in emails like, you know, because people involved in 9-11 truth movement, I mean, there's a whole continuum there. I mean, you've got some, like, I think it's 9-11pilots.org uh, mm -hmm. uh, would say that the Pentagon was hit by a plane, possibly remote controlled, and another pilot's truth organization is uh advocating a missile theory yeah, it gets but into the, the weeds for sure yeah but it, in the weeds but but for me the bottom line writing the book i've written is the families never asked a question like did a missile hit right. the pentagon their question to the 9-11 commission is you know please subpoena the videotapes of the nearby gas station and hotel just to find out what happened and then the 9-11 commission never subpoenas for that information and then they released bogus photographs of it that don't show anything that, if anything, fuel more questioning when yeah. they finally published them years later. Mindy Kleinberg always said, we always believe that the commission would answer our questions. And so there is, across that group, there is a willingness to trust that the government, that the 9-11 commission will finally do the right thing, that will subpoena the people they need to, get people under oath, follow the leads wherever they lie, and, and then put together a report. And it's when that doesn't happen. And then finally, with when it's discovered, I think in the spring of 2004, that Executive Director Zellico and Senior Counsel Ernst May had put together an outline of the report, uh, its chapter headings and subheadings, uh, which would be prescriptive for what the report would, would tell people uh, before they even began the investigation. And, and so... For Bob McElvain, who lost his son, Bobby Jr., that's just, uh, just astounding and scandalous. You know, normally you do an investigation and then you write the report, you write the chapters up because you find information. In the course of most trials, the judge, the prosecution and defense between all the back and forth, they find new witnesses, new information, and then suddenly the direction of the trial goes in a new way. But in the case of, of the 9-11 report, they basically said, this is what we're going to find. 
And that's why Philip Zelikow was there to really draft that narrative. And anything that doesn't fit just falls to the wayside. At one point, I think in the book, I list a number of the whistleblowers that Laurie Van Auken speaks about in a post 9-11 commission report gathering, I think, with Cynthia McKinney in Congress. And she talks about Sibelle Edmonds and others. Colleen Rowley. Yeah, Colleen Rowley. And, and people giving information suggesting that they knew that the government knew where the attacks were going to happen, the targets, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon. They knew the day of it, and they knew the method, which was planes. Not only was it Condoleezza Rice in the August 6th presidential briefing, she gave him the report that said bin Laden determined the strike in the U.S. And remember, she's the one that said that they'd never dreamed of it, never had any idea. The warnings weren't just Condoleezza Rice. The warnings went all the way back to Kofor Black, the former director of the CIA's counterterrorism center, George Tenet, the former director of the CIA, and Chris Whipple, who was writing for Politico, wrote that the Bush administration ignored all these CIA warnings in the month prior. And this goes before August 6th. This goes into July, into June. Tenet recalled a meeting with Condoleezza Rice and her team, and Tenet had told Whipple, this reporter, that another person that was involved with the CIA at the time actually had said, there will be significant terrorist attacks against the United States in the coming weeks or months. The attacks will be spectacular. They will be multiple. So these folks were predicting this was happening, and this gets really ugly because if you go back to the beginning of the Bush administration, Rumsfeld at the Defense Department, they were already trying to find out ways to invade Iraq and Afghanistan, stemming back from the failure to build the pipeline in the Clinton years. They were looking for reasons. None of this looks good in retrospect. In retrospect, when we go back and see this stuff, it looks like they were looking for ways to justify empire expansion into the Middle East, into Iraq, into Afghanistan, and to surround Iran to secure mineral wealth, oil. And 9-11 is the perfect event that they can then harness as an historical Pearl Harbor. Ray McGinnis, could you comment on that? You've got, I think, 14 other nations providing fairly detailed information about warnings. You've got mock drills and exercises expecting that there would be an attack on New York City and the World Trade Center even days before. And then one of the people who was in, in, in involved said that they were really surprised that the exercise they were involved in around the, you know, the week prior ended up happening just like, it's, like they planned. You've also got George Tennant in terms of not doing the right thing. On the morning, he receives a phone call about 8.50 a.m., and, and maybe after the first pleasantries of how, how are you doing this morning, then they get right down to the news of the moment, which is the North Tower has just been hit. And maybe by 8.55, he says that he believes, as he's at the Regis Hotel breakfast, he says to the person he's talking with, the CIA headquarters, that he believes like 100% that this attack, what's just happened, represents a terrorist attack by Osama bin Laden. And so the family's question, Mr. CIA director, if you believe this, why do you not task somebody at your agency to phone the Port Authority and tell them this is a terrorist attack, evacuate the Twin Towers? Even if you think you're blindsided, that at the very least is required. This is the same thing that happens with Giuliani. He tells, I think, ABC later on the day of September 11th that he was told 15 minutes before the South Tower fell down, that he was warned to expect a catastrophic 
catastrophic failure of the Twin Towers, like at about 944 that morning. Well, if he did that, you know, there are announcements going on in the South Tower and the North Tower, I think, saying, you know, with the Port Authority saying, please stay in your buildings. This is America. If you leave your desk, you'll be fired. And so they could have told the Ford Authority, you know, get people to escape, you know, however many might be able to get out, but they don't. So it's, it's just a lack of leadership of a massive scale. And unfortunately, that's the better interpretation, right? It could get far more nefarious after that. We're coming to the end of this segment right now, Ray McGinnis, and your book is titled Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Peter Phillips, my former host here, uh, compiled and published early unanswered questions back in 2003 and four for Project Censored. And again, Ray, not a popular thing to do at the time. It's hard to believe that it's 20 years later. And here we are. And the war in Afghanistan has shown to be what we all predicted, an utter catastrophe, an illegal affair that has continued to run roughshod over a poor country. That disaster is unfolding and fizzling as we speak. But Ray McGinnis, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, what do you hope to gain out of the publication of this book? And where can people get information about it, how to get it, and so forth? I think that 20 years on, I do recommend it my conclusion that there are numbers of a minority of family members who continue to press for a new investigation. And I say, best of all possible worlds, there would be a new investigation, truly independent and transparent to get to the bottom and deal with all these loose ends. But I think that there needs to be a wider conversation across a wider scope of the, of the general public to really reflect on this historical event, the historical event of the families having pressed for an investigation, to look at the questions that they asked, to understand that the families are not all on the same page. There are many families who support the official story, many families who suspect a cover-up, whether Saudi Arabia, complicity Pakistan, or government officials within the USA. And I think that people need to sit through, you know, read the chapters, consider the range of viewpoints, and reflect on it, because it's a very human story. I think we need to revisit the story and correct the historical record, because I think that much of what we've been told cannot be true. Well, Ray McGinnis, the course I teach around this is on historiography, critically thinking about history, and it's called History in the Making. And it literally uses some of the narratives around 9-11, now 20 years later, to basically understand how journalism is the first rough draft of history. And if we don't get it right the first time, there are some serious consequences generationally to pay for that. It's very difficult to go back and correct records when people are so mythologized. And we have to get beyond the headline. This is a traumatic event. I mean, it's traumatic. I think even for me at some level, even though I didn't lose anyone. Ray McGinnis, where can we find more information? Go to www.unanswerdquestions.ca, Canada.ca. I'm on Twitter at Ray McGinnis, numeral seven. And the books will start being printed and shipped out as of September 11th. Ray McGinnis, your new book, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Ray McGinnis, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks. Great to be here. I'd like to dedicate this segment of the program to the late, great Ed Asner, who just passed away, going back from the the Lou Grant days of television as the intrepid editor and reporter, his life as an activist, a socialist, someone that stood up to Reagan's invasion in Latin America, and someone that was also an outspoken proponent of the quest for truth around the events of September 11th. Thank you, Ed Asner.
Coming up next on the Project Censored show, we carry on our topic of September the 11th, 20 years later. We'll be joined by 9-11 activist and video producer Ken Jenkins. Stay with us. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet to a cemetery. The military and the monetary use the media as intermediaries. They are determined to keep the citizens secondary. They make so many decisions that are arbitrary. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we continue with our 20th anniversary and commemoration theme around the events of 9-11. You just heard a conversation with author Ray McGinnis around unanswered questions of 9-11. Uh, folks that regularly listen to the show, of course, know that we did a show with Peter Dale Scott, Aaron Good, and Ben Howard about an article that is now up at Covert Action Magazine that takes a really deep look at who was involved in the events of 9-11. Right now, we are going to continue our conversation with Ken Jenkins. He's a pioneering 9-11 activist and video producer. He has a degree in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University and has done extensive postgraduate study in psychology. Ken has worked as a video professional for over 40 years, including seven years at Hewlett-Packard in their state-of-the-art broadcast video facility, HPTV. And since then, he's been an independent video producer and editor. He has been researching the events around 9-11 literally since the week of those events in 2001. He has produced numerous videos, including with David Ray Griffin, 9-11, The Myth and the Reality. Also with Richard Gage, 9-11, Blueprint for Truth, and the San Francisco Press Conference DVDs for AE911 Truth. Ken Jenkins, welcome to the Project Censored Show. It's my pleasure to be here with you, Mickey. So, Ken, you're certainly someone that's more ensconced in 9-11 details than the average person, to say the very least. You've just participated once again in the 9-11 Film Festival in Oakland, the Grand Lake Theater, where you were giving a presentation. One of the things that I've noticed you do over the years, particularly recently, is that you've started to look a lot more at the psychology behind 9-11 and 9-11 thinking and scholarship. And you also talk about people's knowledge base and the way they frame information that comes in. For myself, I'm technically educated. And so there's certain technical things that have come along in terms of data and information that give me a backdrop and context for the, the actual events of 9-11. And that includes the flight data recorders uh, on the planes. Uh, for those that don't know, the flight data recorder is one of the two black boxes, so-called, that are actually bright orange, <laughs> that are lodged in the very tail of the plane so they can survive a plane crash. And they do. And a uh, flight data recorder has a wealth of information and data on every aspect of that plane in flight that tells you uh, so much about the plane that you can therefore deduce a lot of other information from that. And in fact, just the other day at the film festival, I showed an animation made from the flight data recorder, which shows uh, the plane's every motion from before takeoff to the actual crash. And therefore it, it verifies, for instance, eyewitnesses and other forms of information uh, about what that plane did. And so, the point is, either either context of those two 
helps inform other parts. And what I look for is correlations between all these different things and see where there's a consistency between, let's say, the flight data recorder, the geopolitics, the radar information, the eyewitnesses, and the other source of information. And if they all match up, then maybe you're uh, pretty darn close to the truth. Well, it sounds very methodical and dare we say uh, scientific in its way that you're collecting the information and then analyzing the information. And some of the controversies or unanswered questions around 9-11, those questions maybe actually have been answered. You've done a lot of work about what happened at the Pentagon. In fact, going against the grain of some in the the so-called 9-11 truth movement, arguing with data that there is a plane involved, of course, in, in the Pentagon. You had some 70, 80 page publication. On that particular project, I was working with the group Scientists for 9-11 Truth. That's headed up now by David Chandler. David and Fran Schur put on a conference in Denver in 2019, specifically on that one topic about Pentagon plane. And we had a total of five speakers. I was one, David was one. And we actually flew in a fellow from New Zealand, Warren Stutt, who is an expert on the flight data recorder. And the flight data recorder has actually been available to us for, um, I think, well over a decade. Yet most of the movement doesn't know about it. They don't seem to understand that we have this information or or let alone what it means. And so that was one of the sources we drew upon. Just recently, you were applying the same kind of methodology to it was Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. that, That was the focus of some of your recent work? Yeah. And that one, I found a website that had already done most of my work for me and found stuff that I had no idea existed. Again, all all correlated together say that the story of Flight 93 is, well, unfortunately, the official story. I say unfortunately because people like scientists for 9-11 Truth and myself as part of that get accused by people within the movement of just trying to prove the official story as if that's our goal that we somehow jump ship from 9-11 truth movement and are now working for the other side. Um, And it's not true at all. We're trying to find the truth. And it doesn't matter what that truth is. If it supports the official story, so be it. If it doesn't, then okay, we've got more stuff to work with in terms of the truth movement. But we made a lot of assumptions early on in our movement. Since I was there at the beginning, I was part of all that. And I was part of making a lot of those mistakes as a giant group thing. And so I know the story from the inside out, and I I see my own mistakes as well as those of others. And basically, we had a desire to find stuff that conflicted with the official story. And that desire, through one of the forms of cognitive biases, becomes wishful thinking. And it's actually the name of the cognitive bias. It's a commonly known phrase, and yet it is the perfect definition or way of understanding why we would be so drawn to information that really was not substantiated with much evidence, but it became part of our, and again, I hate to use these words, but they're true, our official dogma, our story, our alternative story of 9-11. And therefore, it became a thing where between groupthink and bandwagon effect and all these various cognitive biases, we sort of, as a group, circled the wagons and You become a heretic within your own movement if you question what the movement's saying. It's difficult to find the truth. It's it's a lifelong process. And our instant gratification culture really is at odds with that. You mentioned cognitive bias. I teach critical reasoning, critical thinking courses 
just finished a textbook on critical thinking with Nolan Higdon for Rutledge called Let's Agree to Disagree about the importance of exchanging information and actually listening critically. And a big part of that is understanding cognitive biases in ourselves. I think one of the most significant and important things that you just said is you notice them in yourself as well as others. It's not only noticing when other people are doing it, it's actually finding out where our own blind spots are. And those are seen as implicit biases. They're kind of invisible to us. But then you mentioned several others, and, and especially coming to mind here, the confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, inferred justification. Um, those are very powerful frames that can really obscure the reality that may be actually be occurring right out in the real world. And, you know, in the time since 9-11, Ken Jenkins, we've also experienced what, what has been referred to as a host-truth world. Now, of course, that phrase drives me batty, host-truth world. And again, Oxford Dictionary puts it as post-truth, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Stephen Colbert joked about it years ago when he called it truthiness, defined as being persuaded by whether something feels true, even if it's not necessarily backed up by facts, right? And, and with Donald Trump, we had his gut reactions and gut responses. Let's talk a little bit about some of these things as they relate to researching a very complicated subject like 9-11. Where, where would you like to, to start with these? Where to start? One I want to throw in real quickly, you talked about recognizing our own biases. That ultimately is the game, and it also is the hardest part. As you learn about these things, it's fairly easy to recognize them in other people. It's very hard to recognize them in ourselves. So just to put that out as just a way to, to know what we're up against, it's just like we can't see ourselves without a mirror, but we can see others clearly. We can't hear ourselves and we don't understand our own thinking because we're using our own thinking to think about our thinking. <laughs> but what I'd really like to do is uh, step back a second and talk about cognitive biases from the definition up. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're going to continue our conversation with Ken Jenkins after this brief musical break where we're going to go into detail about cognitive bias and researching controversial events like 9-11. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we are still addressing the issues of September 11th, 20 years on. We're joined by 9-11 activist and video producer Ken Jenkins. He's a pioneering 9-11 activist and video producer. He has a degree in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University, done extensive postgraduate study in psychology, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about here in a moment is the cognitive biases and how these prevent us from understanding controversial events that happen around us and then communicating about them. Ken also is founder of 9-11tv.org, which has documented many speakers from 9-11 conferences and events over the last 20 years. Ken Jenkins, before the break, we started talking about cognitive biases and we uh, had to take a little break here. And now we're going to dive back in. Let's start, as you suggested, from the ground up. Let's define cognitive biases and let's have you talk about some of these as they relate to our subject. Ken Jenkins. Where to start, I think, is just what is truth and what is truth seeking. 
as a part of a thing called the 9-11 truth movement, you know, we've got this big truth name in our name, the word truth in our name, and it's perhaps a little ostentatious, but the point is, what is this truth thing and how do we find it? And I want to use a quote that I like about truth seeking, which is that as truth seekers, we must be willing to be wrong in the pursuit of what's right. And that's a tough one right from the beginning because we humans really don't like being wrong. Second thing that we need to do is follow the evidence wherever it leads. Now, wherever is a big word in the sense that often we'll find evidence that contradicts what we would like to be true about, for instance, with 9-11 truth, we want to find evidence that conflicts the official story so that we can disprove the official story. So that's our sort of fundamental desire as a movement. And if we run across evidence that we thought was conflicting, and then find out, no, that evidence is wrong. There's this other evidence that says, you know, that actually the official story is true there. We're going to have some resistance right away. And we're going to kind of repel and recoil. And we're probably going to also shoot the messenger that's bringing that evidence. And that's one of the things I've found to be true as I'm working these days, trying to clean up some of the mistakes we made early on, that people within the movement consider me some kind of a heretic that I just want to prove the official story. And it's not true. I want to find the truth. And if it includes parts of the official story, then that's where the evidence leads. And that brings up another point is that one of the biggest challenges we face is just working together cooperatively rather than fighting amongst ourselves. Right. And constructive dialogue is a big part of this, right? How we're communicating those differences is, is often where things break down. So one of the first things I like to mention when I'm talking about cognitive biases is that we have a bias against having biases, <laughs> meaning the word bias has a lot of meanings. And for instance, there's racial bias and uh, nobody, you know, even if they have some, and we all do, what studies show, we don't want to admit it and we don't want to be identified as having that kind of bias. But cognitive bias is a very different kind of bias. It's more like a computer program that we have in our brains, and it has a purpose. There's a reason we have these cognitive biases, which is to basically accelerate our thinking process. And it evolved in this way because we evolved from cavemen, and cavemen <laughs> lived in a dangerous world where there were all kinds of predators around, and those predators wanted us for lunch. And... <laughs> We had to avoid the predators in order to reproduce and, and evolve. And so we had to make some really quick assumptions, like, what's that noise over there? Oh, that might be a predator that wants me for lunch. So I better respond to that by running like crazy or whatever, if I want to survive. So that's just an example of why we have these biases. They, they evolved to protect us uh, when we needed that. The problem is... As I said, these biases are based on very quick assumptions, initial assumptions, just something that just comes along and we, we have to act on it. And as humans, we have this other thing called beliefs. Our beliefs are very foundational to our thinking. And therefore, when something becomes a belief, it's no longer something we can easily and casually change it becomes something that we have to make real effort to change. And if the belief is faulty and we want to change it, it's a challenge. And so these cognitive biases are, for the most part, rooted in beliefs. And that's why they become part of our brain's operating system. 
sort of like the software and we just not even aware they that they exist or that they're operating because it's all on sort of an autopilot system it becomes difficult for people to see the things from inside the same framework that's preventing them from actually seeing it in the first place, as you as you said before. Some of these other biases, interestingly enough, the confirmation bias is, of course, one of the really rough ones. There's different forms of it, and that's how we go out to prove what we already think. It basically tries to prove our belief, and we actually shortcut the critical thought process in terms of the method of how we gather information. We basically go out and we find things that prove us, and then we move on. Absolutely. And these biases are mental shortcuts. And they actually have a name. They're called heuristics. You don't need the name. Just think of them as a mental shortcut. But all shortcuts leave out stuff. They bypass and oversimplify. And and, and oversimplification, by the way, is another one of the basic functions or results of these biases. We humans live in an incredibly complex universe and society. And there's nobody alive that can possibly grasp all that. And so by necessity, we have to simplify things in order to be able to even work with them. But the problem again with simplification that things are left out and and whole steps can be uh, bypassed and uh, we could end up with the wrong result because of somewhere along the way, we took a shortcut that led us to a wrong conclusion. These things are a big part of researching, whether it's for journalism or videos or books or you know anything that we want to uh, put out there to the world in terms of this is this is what I think about this or this is what this movie is about it's all kind of weighed and filtered by these biases that uh, can tend to take us off track and then as I said earlier because they become beliefs it's hard to get back on track it is, and it's pretty interesting that you mentioned the dynamic before, that because you've really tried, you've made a really conscious effort to think critically and transparently about what happened around certain events related to, to September the 11th, that you say that you seemingly have run afoul of some of the more true believer uh, members of a movement like that. So talk a little bit more about some of the specific examples of, of cognitive bias, maybe relating to some of the 9-11 research or things that you've done or areas maybe that you see as breakthrough areas, or maybe you see even as more promising. In other words, are people trying to maybe model and replicate more of the kind of research you've been doing lately? By the way, there's a huge amount of research behind all this. There have been identified by phrase and word and definition, something over 200 specific biases. Uh, they overlap. Uh, they're not all completely unique from one another. Mm-hmm. But, and they're actually organized into four categories and so forth. This is this is quite a uh, field of study. Uh, it's one you could probably spend years working with. And, and fortunately, some people do, and we can benefit. But what I did is I went through this long list of biases, and I tried to identify a finite number that most particularly apply to the work I'm doing, 9-11 Truth, and trying to find the truth about things like the, the Flight 77 Pentagon plane. So I just want to run down that list here fairly briefly to answer your question. The one that I start with is sort of a fundamental bias. It's the way I think of it. And it's called anchoring or focalism. And it basically is a bias that relies too heavily on an initial piece of information. And that's what's considered to be the anchor, quote unquote, when making assessments and decisions. So in other words, you go out there and you do some research and you find something and oh, wow, this is good. And you grab onto it 
and it helps you accomplish your goal of, in the case of the 9-11 truth movement, poking holes in the official story. And you have a, a reason to want to hold on to that because now it has value and you might have made a discovery and so forth. But problem becomes, it becomes like an anchor. And if you look at a, an anchor in the sense of a ship in water, the boat can go in circles around that anchor, but it can't go anywhere else. So everything becomes reference to that initial piece of information. So in the case of the 9-11 movement, it was the Pentagon plane, this idea that no plane hit the Pentagon became the anchor. And then all evidence and all information from that point forward is referenced against that anchor. And if it matches the anchor, great. If it doesn't, well, it's bogus. It's, you know, it's not even worth thinking about. That's a good example, an unfortunate one. These kinds of cognitive biases, they're exacerbated, of course, by media, by propaganda, by a government that's less than forthright. Those factors also have some influence on maybe how people will choose what their anchor is. And because, again, we're trying to find information that disputes a story, and, and therefore, if it's uh, coming from official levels, that we, we want to look at that uh, critically, but we tend to look less critically at the stuff that we're holding on to. The second bias I wanted to mention is the same one you talked about, and it's probably one of the most useful ones. And fortunately, it's gotten out into the media and people are somewhat familiar with it. And that's confirmation bias. And you already defined it pretty well. I would just add uh, uh, as a brief list, uh, it, it changes the tendency to search for, favor, interpret, or recall information that confirms one's beliefs or hypothesis, while giving disproportionately less consideration to alternative possibilities. And so, in other words, it affects both how we um, research things, what we look for and what we don't look for, as well as how we interpret what we find. And, and both of them are part of confirmation bias, which is really it's sort of like a, a set of biases. And that's why one of the reasons it's so useful, but it's also uh, harder to define and talk about and includes a bunch of, uh, you know, sub sub correlations or sub sub, uh, excuse me, sub sub biases, um, which I'll just list quickly. It's, it's attitude polarization, belief, perseverance, mm -hmm. primacy effect, illusory correlation. Each of these have definitions with which with more time, we could go through all of them. But I'm throwing the words out because this stuff is all easy to find. If anyone wants to do research, uh, you just grab a phrase and throw it in uh, any search engine. And most often, Wikipedia will come up with a, a really great way to define all these things. And then there's, I mentioned before, biased interpretation. Um, there's a sort of flip side of that, disconfirmation bias, where we set a higher standard for evidence that go against what we believe than the standards we have for what we we do believe. Tell somebody something that they don't want to believe, the first thing they'll say is, where's your proof? And they don't stop and think about, well, do I really have proof for what I believe, or do I just have something that I think might be relevant? And so there's a different standard that immediately goes into place once we have that bias. Another one is overconfidence in, in our beliefs, that, that we, we come to believe things <laughs> so firmly that we speak of them as if they're automatically true. And it's quite certainty. There, there's no wiggle room. There's no room for doubt. I mentioned earlier another one that totally applies to, uh, like, say, a movement like the 9-11 Truth Movement um, and, and how we have this thing called wishful thinking, which is based on our desire. We really want something to be true. 
And desire is a powerful human motivation. It is not some little casual thing. It is one of the foundational things that, that drives us through life. And so if we have a desire for information that disputes the official story, and then that's what we're going to look for. And that's what we're going to favor. And that's what we're going to hope and believe is true and, and wish is true. And Ken Jenkins, it's safe to say that because these biases are so prevalent in all of us to some degree, it does cause us to come to literally the wrong conclusions about some things, meaning not factually supported. And when you're in a movement, a big movement, diverse movement, that's looking at extraordinary events like September 11th, there's a lot of consequence or capital that's kind of forfeited, intellectual capital, when we make those mistakes. You kind of get dug in. You're surrounded by people that have one point of view. If you're an outlier of that point of view, it creates an adversarial situation. And actually, that's just about exactly where I was going to go next anyway, which was this idea of groupthink. We'd mentioned it a bit earlier, I think. And I find it's a very unpopular bias to talk about. People do not like to think that they're part of groupthink. They want to think they're an independent entity and they're not influenced by other people. They just look for research and, and so forth. And unfortunately, we're social animals and we are surrounded by other people who have their, their own thought. And when you get into a movement, what happens is Let's, again, use the 9-11 truth movement as the example, because we are now differing from the official story and corporate mainstream media. We're stepping outside of that. And we feel alienated. We feel separate. And then we find kindred spirits and we get together and form a movement, you know, and we have groups and, and we sit in our little groups and we talk about all the stuff we can't talk about with our friends and our family and our workmates um, who all will reject us and think less of us. And so such a group has an adjective that describes it's insular. And I think of it as, you know, same root word as insulation, like insulation in the house. It separates us. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a wall that exists around a group that's doing something that differs from the consensus. And the problem with insular groups is that the wall works both ways. It protects us from the outside, but it also blocks information from the outside that may be true, that we maybe need to be listening to. And yet we sit in our little insular group and talk amongst ourselves and convince ourselves that we're all right about everything we say. And then we can't talk to other people because they don't want to even hear what we have to say. And it becomes a very strong groupthink situation. People don't like thinking about themselves that way, but it is part of human nature. It is. And it, I mean, one can easily see how it might be unflattering. Um, in, in a certain regard, but it's a really crucial process to be self-aware of how all these things operate. And Ken Jenkins, studying them is one way to put them on the radar, like actually trying to understand cognitive biases and, and the names and what they mean, at least help us to start the process of seeing our own limitations, right? So we only have a, about a couple minutes left here, uh, Ken. So I just wanted to, um, to wrap things up have you seen more of this happening in some movements like 9-11 where people are trying to really chase down the elusive facts and tell the stories wherever they lead? I would say um, one of the things to look out for that I've observed within 9-11 Truth Movement is this, this feeling of being insular and separate mm -hmm. from society in general, where we end up 
just sort of talking to ourselves and each other. We call it preaching to the choir and stuff. And we put on events and other people that are already into that subject come and very few people that are new to it come. And it, it becomes this big echo chamber. And that phrase echo chamber, of course, is very popular for good reason in, in our <laughs> world these days, because everything's become so polarized and we're all living in echo mm. chambers. And, and that makes it extraordinarily how difficult to find the truth when all you're hearing is from your own echo chamber. Social media feeds thrive on the whole concept. Right. Because then you get more clicks and that's all they care about because that's where the money is. Yeah. So, well, Ken Jenkins, it's been great to have you on. Any last words you'd like to share with our audience about the importance of understanding cognitive bias and seeking truth, specifically when researching really difficult and complicated and controversial subjects, and also anywhere that people can find your work? Well, the Denver event we talked about earlier is available as video online. And um, in, at that event, I did talk about these uh, biases and I had slides and had a little more time. And so you could get some quick detail right there. Um, but more than that, I would suggest to everyone that this is a subject worth studying. This really is worth putting the time into, um, you know, start with confirmation bias or start with cognitive bias. Either one will get you in the door and um, spend some time with it and then talk to other people about it and then try to integrate it into your life and into your thinking. Because as long as these things operate below the radar and we're not aware uh, we're going to continue to have uh, the kinds of polarizations and pointless arguments and so forth that get us nowhere. And, and it, it hampers essentially all movements. And again, remind yourself that it's hardest of all to see our own biases. You may start seeing them in others and try to keep reminding yourself that we're most blind to our own biases. So I'm talking to Ken Jenkins, 9-11 activist, video producer. You can learn more at his website, 9-11tv.o. RG and a quick shout out to a couple of texts that I've used in classes on critical thinking that do exactly what Ken Jenkins was talking about. One is the MIT book by Lee McIntyre called Post Truth that examines that, goes into some detail about cognitive bias. I mentioned Jennifer Eberhardt earlier, and another is uh, an old critical thinking book by um, two authors, Brown and Keeley. It's called Asking the Right Questions. But as Ken Jenkins said, th these things are available online and they're pretty easy to find. You just have to want to go look for them. Ken Jenkins, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks very much for having me on, Mickey. We want to liberate land, supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians, because they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program, also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners. For tuning in, we'll see you next time. <laughs>